Hello, and welcome to Let's Talk, a new series of candid conversations covering the issues facing freelance professionals today. I'm Tom Rizzo, your host, managing director and founder of Plectrum Advisors, an investment advisory firm based in Los Angeles. On each episode of Let's Talk, I'll be speaking with some of the most plugged in experts to help you and me make sense of today's changing environment and to help you be smarter about how to approach work and life. So let's get started. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk. I'm Tom Rizzo, your host, and I'm the managing director and founder of Plectrum Advisors, an investment advisory firm based in Los Angeles. Today's guest on Let's Talk is Brittany Britton. Brittany's a trust and estate attorney based in Los Angeles, and today she's going to talk about trusts, wills, healthcare directives, and power of attorney, and how these things work and how they might benefit you. Brittany's very knowledgeable about the law, and she's also very personable and engaging. She's helped many freelancers, and I look forward to having her share her expertise with you here today. So welcome, Brittany. Thanks again for being here today. We really appreciate it. And I thought we might start off by, or I might start off by asking you, how has the pandemic affected estate planning? Sure. Good to see you, Tom. Um, I think that the pandemic has really brought estate planning to the forefront of many people's minds. Um, we have been inundated with individuals who have been waiting years to get their estate plan done, and the pandemic has made them ready to take that step. So, you know, we have to deal with remote notarizations and people in uh, assisted living that might be hard to reach. Um, but in general, it's increased business because people really want this done now more than ever. Has the, has the process changed at all because of the pandemic, like what you do? It, well, you know, we went almost entirely virtual for close to a year. And that's fine for my clients that are comfortable with Zoom and um, conference calls and um, docu-signing fee agreements. Uh, it's been a challenge with our older clients. And so we have resumed in-person services in the last, you know, eight months. And, uh, but otherwise, from a legal perspective, really no changes, just the urgency that I sense from our clients of really wanting this wrapped up. Yeah, that's, that's great. Well, that, that might lead me to like another question um, of just the specifics of, I know people hear the word trust and wills and probate, and, but mm -hmm. I think a, a lot of us are really in the dark about you know, how they work and what they do. Could you enlighten us a little bit? I mean, let's, let's start with like, what is a trust? Sure, sure. A trust is a legal entity that you create. You could consider that similar to like an LLC. Um, but the purpose of this entity, the purpose of your trust is to hold your assets while you are living. That's why it's a living trust. And then pass those assets to your beneficiaries upon your death without having to involve the local probate court. So keeping everything privately administered, we should not need a judge getting involved in the estate when there's a trust in place. So if that would contrast to if there's not a trust and someone just has a will, yes. what would that, what does that process look like? Yes. So the default law is that if you have no estate plan, 
or if you only have a will, then your assets must go through the probate court system upon your death. Um, there is an exclusion for any estate that's worth less than $166,000. That's California law. So if you're under that threshold, we can often handle that privately, but anybody over that 166K, their loved ones are gonna need to file a probate petition and they're looking at at least a year uh, in probate court, attorney's fees, publishing in the local paper, and sometimes most importantly, opening the estate up to creditors. All right, so when we avoid probate and have a private trust administration, your estate is far more insulated from creditors coming after, after your beneficiaries. Interesting. So um, I know I, I've heard from uh, a few people that one of the concerns they have about, uh, about this issue, like, well, should I create a trust or not? Are, are there issues of that you don't own the assets anymore or that if you were to go to, let's say, want to refinance your house that you couldn't because it's not yours anymore? Can you speak to that a little bit? I would be happy to. And that's such a good question that I probably get from nine out of every 10 trust clients. So uh, the answer is no, there is no difference when you transfer your property into a revocable living trust. So I would just make that distinction for your listeners. 99% uh, of the trusts that are done in California are revocable, meaning you can amend it or revoke it. And when you retain that power to amend or revoke, the trust is considered a disregarded entity by the state of California, the property tax assessor, uh, and the IRS, most importantly. Um, so you go to refinance that property and your lender is just going to refinance your mortgage in the name of your trust. I see. I see. So there's no, there's no, you're not at any disadvantage to having put the house into the trust if you want to refinance the house or if you want to sell it or that kind of thing. It's not an issue. Correct. No disadvantage whatsoever. Um, that the proceeds of a sale of a property that's held in trust need to be wired into a trust account. Um, and so you just walk into your local bank, credit union, you give them a copy of the trust, you give them your social security number, they'll open up a trust account for you and escrow will wire the sale proceeds into that account. So pretty simple, right? If, if it, it, it really is. Yeah. And when you look at the benefits of avoiding probate and protecting those assets for your heirs, um, those little steps like opening up a trust account, in my opinion, are, are really neither here nor there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, talk a little bit about what, what, what are the costs of probate? Like, so this is if, if you were not to open up a trust, what, what does this end up costing? Sure. So I have opened three probates in the last couple of weeks that are all very similar. Single family home in Burbank, um, you know, couple kids, no estate plan. Uh, each of those are about a million dollar estate. So I'll just use that as an example on a million dollar estate you're going to have around three to $5,000 in court fees, publishing fees, certified copy fees, you know, things of that nature. And then what really gets you is the attorney fee and the administrator fee. So in California, we have not had probate reform as many other states have. California has not, which means probate attorneys like myself, we're being paid a percentage of the value of the estate. 
So to give you an idea on one of those million dollar probates, my fee is going to be around $25,000 and my client's fee is going to be around $25,000 as well. And then you've got those three to $5,000 in court fees that I was mentioning. So on a million dollar estate, you're looking at about $55,000. And then who knows if any creditors are going to show up, Medicare, Franchise Tax Board of California, um, disgruntled former business partner, uh, you know, anything like that who might come up as well and have an avenue to be reimbursed now because we're in the probate court. Ah, yeah. And you said currently it's taking a year plus to get these things to wind through? Yes, for the average client. I have had a handful get done in 10 months and those were A plus clients with an A plus attorney on their team. I would say 12 to 18 months is a reasonable expectation in LA County right now. Um, Orange County is so slow. I have a case there that's going to be 18 to 24 months and at no fault of my own or my client, uh, just the process in Orange County is taking a lot longer right now due to COVID. Wow. So that's significant. So you have to weigh that against, I know people say, well, it's, it's going to cost money to set up the trust. Sure. So you have to weigh the benefit of if you don't set it up, um, mm -hmm. that the heirs are going to be shouldered with significant costs relative to the costs of setting up a, setting it, up a trust. Exactly. On that million dollar probate, they could have, the, the decedent could have gone to a number of estate planning attorneys in LA. I would say on the low end, because he was a single individual, on the low end, maybe $2,000, and on the high end, $6,000 to create a trust. And that would have completely avoided the $55,000 uh, of probate fees. So I think the return on investment is pretty obvious. Yeah, that's a huge, and if the estate happens to be worth $2 million or $3 million or something, those, those numbers are going to double and triple, I would assume. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It seems like a no-brainer. Um, <laughs> I think that there are also some misconceptions about some of the things that a trust can and can't do. I yes. think that, that sometimes people think that there's um, uh, some liability protection that comes with this. You know, they confuse it with other terms. Can you speak to that a little bit? Happy to. Yes, this kind of goes back to what I was saying a, a few minutes ago about a revocable trust being what my office is typically doing and what most estate planning attorneys are doing for individuals that don't have tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. Okay, you're going to have a revocable trust the vast majority of the time. That gives you flexibility to change your mind about the terms of the trust throughout your life. Very beneficial. Also, no tax consequences, as we discussed. Um, so some people might see the downside of that revocable trust as being that there is no liability protection. Uh, this is a huge misconception that I hear all the time. I've received phone calls. I'm concerned my neighbor is going to sue me. And so I want to put my property into a trust. Uh, that is not the purpose of a trust, uh, not the purpose of a revocable trust. Uh, now, there are some more complex trusts, irrevocable trusts that individuals with very high net worths or even individuals with really risky professions, lawyer, surgeon, general contractor, you know, might take advantage of an irrevocable trust. They're not as common, uh, but those types of trusts can, pro can protect from liability. They just tie your hands for the rest of your life. So an individual who's 40, 50, 60, looking at living decades more, 
you know, the irrevocable trust is set in stone on the day you sign it. So they're not as attractive to most of my clients. Mm -hmm. um, I think that uh, my, I would include myself in this, um, in this category where um, people are apprehensive about the first step, contacting the attorney, and they don't know what they're going to have to to show what they're going to have to bring. Are there, is there paperwork in order? Do they know where the deed to the house is and all of that kind of thing? And I, I fear that some people um, who otherwise would get involved in this process um, don't just because they're afraid of looking either foolish or unprepared or they don't know the questions to ask and that kind of thing. Can you talk a little bit about like how this process works and, and especially how you, you handle it in terms of being able to walk people through what they need? Yes, yes. And I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I think it's that first step that is always the hardest. I find after the first initial meeting, every client says, well, that was so much easier than we thought it was going to be, you know? So there's this apprehension that it's going to be worse than, than the reality. Um, so I would say every estate planning attorney across the board is going to have an intake questionnaire for you. And the differences between those questionnaires are going to be how much does the attorney want, how much legwork does the attorney want you to do? versus how much are they willing to do themselves. So at my firm, we have tried to simplify this process as much as possible, and I continue to tweak it over the years. Um, but as an example, my intake is incredibly straightforward. I need your legal name and birth date, your date of marriage. I need a family tree, legal names, even the half brother you don't talk to anymore. I need everybody there. And then an inventory of your assets. I don't need account numbers. I don't need the exact balance. Give me a ballpark. So I try and keep it simple like that. List your real estate for me. I don't need you to find the deed because I have a relationship with a local title company that's going to find that deed for you, whether you have it or not. So that's how we structure things to really try and ease the client into that first meeting. Um, you know, many attorneys will send you an intake form that says, who do you want your executor to be? Who do you want to inherit? Who should be your power of attorney? And I have removed all of those types of questions from my intake because I think that's a really important part of my job to walk the client through that and explain what is your power of attorney? Because you might have a preconceived idea of who the power of attorney is and, and it's not accurate. Um, so we've simplified in that way. And I do think that's the trend. I think that's the trend in estate planning. Mm -hmm. So what that's, you mentioned power of attorney. Talk a little bit about, about what that is and, and what the various options for that are. Okay, love a power of attorney, Tom. <laughs> So many good uses for it. So we can divide powers of attorney into two different camps. Um, we have an incapacity planning only power of attorney, which is my spouse can only serve as my power of attorney if I am incapacitated. Okay, that's incapacity only. So if I go my whole life and I'm never, never incapacitated, the power of attorney never goes into effect. That's what I'm doing for most of my clients. The second camp is a power of attorney that is immediately effective, which means on the day I sign it, my power of attorney can file my taxes, pay my bills, 
call Social Security Administration, call Medicare, my employer, even defend and litigate a lawsuit in my name, my power of attorney can do on my behalf. Real estate transactions, stock transactions. So the power of attorney is someone you trust to act on your behalf. The question is, do you want them to immediately be able to act on your behalf? Or is this really just a protection in the event you're incapacitated? And in that case, we go with that first type of power of attorney. Can the, the type you were just talking about, the all-encompassing one, can that be revoked? Absolutely. And that's, you know, again, most of the documents we're doing for our clients can be revoked or amended at any time. That's the flexibility that comes with an estate plan under California law. So when clients are sort of, oh, nervous to take a step, I like to remind them, you can change your mind a week from now, a year from now, 10 years from now. You're, you know, we're, this is a placeholder and you can call and make amendments whenever you want. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, talk a little bit about, if you know, um, about uh, many of our clients are freelancers who uh, receive royalties for work they've done over the years and years and years. So like you might have a 30 year career and they get royalties coming from um, all kinds of places, either the secondary markets fund or from ASCAP or from the European uh, uh, version of Fair Play. Um, uh, how can the client protect their royalties so that in the event of their demise that their heirs can continue to receive their royalties. Yes, this is so important. And it's really a specific type of asset that needs to be treated um, in a particular way. So I think you and I have discussed before that there might be one of the guilds that allows you to name a beneficiary. Does that sound right? Yeah. Um, and when you can name a beneficiary, you're telling the holder of that royalty or the holder of your pension or your stock account, upon my death, please pay to these individuals. Uh, when you name a beneficiary like that, that is a contract with the holder of that asset, and they are bound by law to pay directly to those individuals. No probate, no, don't even need to see your will and trust because you have a contract that it goes directly to them. So that's very simple when it comes to life insurance, 401ks, and IRAs. But royalties and residuals and, and other types of intellectual property like copyrights, trademarks, fall into a camp where you really don't have the opportunity to name a beneficiary. And that is where your trust is so valuable. Um, you create your trust and then you execute what's called an assignment. I assign all of my right and interest into my royalties, residuals, name and likeness, intellectual property. I assign all of that to my trust. And it's as simple as that one piece of paper uh, being submitted then to the holder of the royalty and residual after your death, along with a copy of the death certificate, where they're going to now start cutting checks to your trust, which allows your successor trustee, better known as the executor, the person you trust to administer the estate, that individual can now continue to collect those royalties and your trust should say who inherits them. So, mm -hmm. I see. So that'll, so it would, the, during your lifetime, you would collect these monies outside of the trust. 
Correct. And upon your death, the, the issuer of the royalties gets a notice that they should be issued to the trust and then the trustee or, or the executor is able to then disperse them according to the terms of the trust. That's right. And I have many clients, whether they're in TV, film, music, um, who might have royalties coming in different names. So imagine a woman that's receiving royalties in her maiden name, royalties in her married name, and then later in life she created a loan out LLC, and now she's getting royalties and residuals to that LLC as well. Your assignment needs to cover all of those bases, listing maiden and married name, and then we need to do an assignment for that LLC loan out as well. This, and this would be something that you would cover if someone came into you and said, I want to oh. uh, form a trust during that process, this would get taken care of at that time. Absolutely. This is part of my general practice. In fact, um, every single client uh, that I have signs an assignment that says they give their royalties, residuals and intellectual property. Even, you know, you own a restaurant down the street and you don't have any royalties and residuals. I still do it as a matter of course, because it's a really great catch-all and you never know what could come up later in life. Yeah. Well, I know for so many of my clients, this is an area that has really not been addressed and it's unknown what you're supposed to do. And there's not, there's not a lot of counseling out there in terms of this. So I think this particular piece of information for our freelance clients is, is very valuable. Yes, yes. And I'd love to tell you as well, you know, I mentioned the successor trustee receiving those royalties and residuals after the death of the owner. Um, well, I've had plenty of clients say to me, you know, I want my sister to be the trustee, so she's going to manage the money for my children, but she knows nothing about my business, nothing about uh, dealing with my manager or my agent, dealing with the guilds. And in, in that case, you can actually name a special trustee to um, someone who knows your business, who knows about royalties and residuals, to be specifically in control of those assets only. And that's just a really great option that I like to mention to my freelance clients. Yeah, I mean, I think that's such a, such a great idea because um, the, the, especially the royalties coming from all kinds of different places. If you're not in this business and if you're not receiving royalties, you, how would you know how this works, right? Exactly, uh, you wouldn't. So it, it's nice that you can, you can specify uh, mm -hmm. that. I, I have here from the, the, the last time we spoke uh, and I, I kind of stole this from you. You said that there are three documents that everyone should have, uh, the trust, a health care directive and a limited power of attorney. Can you elaborate on that a little bit, the three documents? Yes. Well, I would say the trust and the will are sort of two and two for one, because mm -hmm. even when you have a trust, you still need a will. Ah. So those are two for ones. And then uh, the health care directive and the power of attorney are the incapacity planning documents. And these are really overlooked because I can't tell you how many people have said, I don't need a will and trust. I'm going to be dead. What do I care? I, I hear this a lot. Okay. I don't care about taxes. I don't care about probate. They can deal with it. I'm going to be dead. Yeah. And you know what? You're right. You are going to be dead. But what if you're incapacitated? What if you are living and you have become incapacitated? Now you're going to really wish you had incapacity documents in place. Yeah. 
So that's your power of attorney and your advanced directive. Um, the power of attorney we touched on earlier, that's financial, government, real estate. Okay, that's the person you trust to handle those types of matters. It's far more broad. Um, whereas the advanced directive is those medical healthcare decisions. This is if you are unconscious and can't tell your doctor what you want, what your wishes are, uh, who do you trust to step in and make those decisions for you? And that is my response to anyone who says, well, I'm going to be dead. What do I care? Because I say, well, estate planning is more than just what happens at your death. Estate planning is also what happens if you're living but incapacitated. And that's where the power of attorney and the healthcare directive come in. And I've been doing them for college age students. Oh, interesting. Okay. So I'm repping the parents. And as I'm explaining to the parents about the power of attorney and the advanced directive, they suddenly realize their 19-year-old child is on the East Coast in college. And if something were to happen to him, you know, God forbid a car accident or where he's going to be fine, but he's temporarily incapacitated, you have no rights over your 19-year-old child unless they've given you a power of attorney and an advanced directive, in which case the doctor can make decisions with you over the phone, you can call their employer, you know, you can handle any of those legal things that you need to. Well, that's eye-opening, yeah, for a 19-year-old. I mean, who, who would have thought of that? Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're not usually calling me on their own. It's usually their parents, you know, well, not 100% of the time it's the parents, but um, I walk them through it and explain it to them, and they're usually happy to do so, you know, and, and I say the same thing to them is you can change your mind. If in six, seven years you have a partner or a spouse, you can amend this document and include your spouse now as that power of attorney. Ah. You know, we, uh, we touched briefly on the word trustee, you know, the, what, the, what the trustee does. Um, can you talk a little bit about the role of the trustee and then what goes into how do you decide who's the best person to be your trustee? Yes. So first of all, when you create a trust during your life, a living revocable trust, you are the trustee. So the trustee is the party with legal control and authority over the assets. So while you're living, you buy a house, you sell a house, you move stock, you, do, you lease your property, you do whatever you like because you are the trustee. Upon your incapacity or upon your death is when your successor trustee steps in and they'll have all that same authority and no court oversight, right? Because we've opted out of court. We've elected to have a private administration. So I, I'm confident saying this is the most important decision you have to make in your estate planning. And the best individual is not necessarily a financial advisor, lawyer, CPA. Sometimes those people can actually mess it up for themselves because they know too much. Um, I think the best trustee is impartial and is obviously trustworthy. Um, so this needs to be someone that you know pays their bills on time, files their taxes every year. This is someone you know will not pit beneficiaries against each other. Um, this is someone you know that if they're not sure the next step to take, 
they're going to hire a CPA, they're going to hire a lawyer, they're going to hire an investor and have a professional handle those matters for them. So I would say honesty and impartiality are those top two qualities. And then if they happen to have skills in financial services or taxes, or then great, that's you know the cherry on top. Um, but it's not a requirement by any means. Mm-hmm. How about could, could you appoint um, one, one or more of your children to be your successor trustee? You can, you can appoint uh, one or more of your children. I, it's very common for my clients to appoint an adult child. And I'm usually trying to convince them to choose one and then to have a descending order of if our first choice cannot serve, who's next in line. And, but with that being said, you can name co-trustees, meaning two children or two other third parties working together. Um, You know, this is really personal. I think that clients want to make sure they're not going to leave any hurt feelings um, of choosing one child over the other. Uh, It's easy for me to look at it pretty clinically of just, well, you know, this child is a stock investor and this child is an artist that, you know, lives on the beach in Mexico. Like we're going to go with the investor child, you know, to me, it's pretty straightforward. Not every client feels that way. They, they want it to be equal, you know, and I say, if that's really what you want, uh, you got to tell your children that you need them to work together on this because if you name co-trustees, they have to agree on everything. And what happens if they disagree? They go to court, okay? If they're disagreeing on whether to sell the family home or you know, move money, uh, then their only recourse typically is to file a petition in LA Superior and have a judge decide. And we're trying to avoid that. So, you know, that's why I typically say choose one. Um, But I have administered a trust where the woman named all three of her kids as co-trustees and they lived in three different states. And so we were FedExing documents all around the country for everybody's signature. We made it work and they all got along without having to go to court, but it was certainly more work uh, than if she had just chosen one. Yeah. I mean, it seems that human nature and the, and the families I've dealt with in my business that the chances of everybody agreeing on ev- everything, even all good people, we're, we're not talking about any malice here, but yes. you know, everybody's got a little bit different point of view and you're really opening yourself up to not certain trouble, but the potential for some issues that could be avoided if you're saying, this one person is going to make the decisions and you know he's going to have, he or she's going to have to explain himself or herself to everybody mm-hmm. else but ultimately the power rests with that person to make the decision it seems exactly. like just from a human nature standpoint one is less likely to be troublesome than multiples so. that is definitely my point of view and and it's a fair amount of work for the trustee uh-huh. uh and and you know i the a big problem i see is individuals who say, I had a client just today say to me, well, I want my sister taken care of, but I know my son will do it. I know he will. And I said to him, maybe he will. Okay. And maybe I'm focusing on this too much, but what if he doesn't? Okay. And then your sister who has special needs 
is, is left out in the cold here. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, and I had another client who said, oh, my wedding ring goes to my daughter. Well, she had three daughters and she said, oh, they all know that this one wants the ring. He said, well, that's a big diamond. Okay. So if we don't put that in the trust, are they going to think that it's just hers or are they going to think she needs to buy it from the trust? You know, let's be really clear so that we're not putting the trustee in a position to have to choose sides and, and resolve disagreements. Mm -hmm. So inside of the trust, you could have a, like a special requests page or something that says this, 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 and this goes here, this, this, and this goes there. I mean, that's, that's doable. Absolutely. Absolutely. And similar with the special trustee that I mentioned for royalties. Mm -hmm. um, I had a lady with a yarn collection. I had a guy with a vintage car collection and their main trustees knew nothing about those items. So they nominated their best friend to be the yarn trustee and the vintage car trustee. Okay, so you could kind of relieve your overall trustee of that duty and give it to someone that really understands your wishes for those particular items. Mm -hmm. is, the, is the trustee compensated like after your death? They can be and they have the right to be. Uh -huh. So I see trusts all the time where attorneys will include a clause that says um, the trustee has no right to compensation. And I can tell you that's not enforceable in California. The trustee always has a right to compensation. Uh, now, California is not incredibly helpful in telling us what that is. The law says it needs to be a fair and reasonable amount. Okay. And most attorneys in Los Angeles in 2022 are going to agree that 1 to 1.5% of the assets managed on an annual basis is fair and reasonable compensation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're inheriting from the trust, you're typically going to waive that compensation because there is a tax distinction there. Um, compensation as trustee is income, meaning you need to pay income tax on it. Mm -hmm. Whereas inheritance, there's no inheritance tax at the California state level or at the IRS level. So if the money's sort of coming to you anyways, many of my clients waive compensation as trustee. Is there a conflict if the trustee is a beneficiary? There's really not, no. Uh, they are allowed to you know, self-deal to an extent. Mm -hmm. uh, you can give a trustee the first right of refusal to buy a piece of property, for instance, or to buy a business. Mm -hmm. And then I just like to put protections in there. You know, the appraisal shall be done um, by an objective third party or the beneficiaries get to choose the appraiser, not the trustee. I you know, see. so you can kind of include little things like that to keep everybody protected. Mm -hmm. Well, this is, this is also fascinating and it's, um, it's just, it's cloudy in most people's minds that aren't legal people you know if we do other things if we're artists or musicians or whatever you know we're, we're really not knowledgeable about how this works so this is really lovely to be able to have you walk us through how this works and defang it a little bit in terms of well, it, it doesn't have to be frightening to or particularly expensive to put this thing together and the benefits seem like um, really to outweigh the costs on this yes absolutely a good estate plan should plan for who inherits your assets and avoid probate. Name guardians if you have a minor child. 
or a pet. We can name pet guardians as well. So even if you don't have a minor child who you want to take your pets. And then number three is those incapacity planning documents. Mm -hmm. It's really as simple as that. And anyone that tries to make it more complex than that, um, you know, is probably not the right attorney for you unless you're worth $50 million, you know, and then you should definitely get the most complex estate plan you possibly can. <laughs> yeah. Like when, uh, when, if someone decides to take the first step and contact you or someone else, how, how what's the time frame? How long does this usually take from the first contact till when the trust is done? Okay, so let's say I have a consultation today, 15 minute phone call, it's always free. Uh, we immediately send them the intake, and if they would like to move forward, they return that intake to us. Now, if we have a really zealous client, you know, we might get that intake by the end of the day, or we might get it three weeks from now. So I don't really start my clock until I get that intake back. Got it. And from that intake, I'd say my average single client is four to six weeks, mm -hmm. and my average married client is six to eight weeks. Mm -hmm before they're done, out the door. Yeah, so inside of a couple of months, this gets done once they return the, the intake form. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, this is, this is really good. I'm just, I was looking over my notes to see if there's anything else we didn't, uh, we didn't cover. Is there, are, do you have any last words about, um, about what people should do or? Well, one thing you and I, I think touched on um, off, offline of the podcast that I think listeners might be interested in is, are there taxes, you know, death taxes, um, inheritance taxes. Mm -hmm. And so there are at the IRS level, estate taxes. Um, however, those estate taxes are only due if you leave greater than the exemption amount, which today is upwards of $12 million per individual and almost $25 million for a married couple. So that means all the you know, millions of people in our country that have less than $12 million, they pay zero in tax. Um, but the important thing that I think your listeners might be interested in is that that number is set to sunset in just a few years back to the old exemption amount, which was, you know, with inflation, it'll be about $6 million for an individual. So it's going to get sliced in half. And that means that a far larger number of our clients and just citizens in general are going to be subject to the IRS estate tax unless Congress passes a new bill. So I think people should just be aware of that. There's a lot of rhetoric around death taxes and it doesn't apply to most people unless again, you're in that $12 million plus range. Um, and I think that should hopefully just ease your listeners' minds um, that your kids aren't gonna pay inheritance tax um, and there's no estate tax on the value of your assets, at least in California and under 12 million for the IRS. Mm -hmm. So they, if, if the estate's worth under the current exemption of 12 million, if, if it's a $10 million estate, all $10 million goes to the heirs uh, without any income or estate taxes paid. Correct. The only income taxes are just as you would pay income tax during your life on um, dividends on stock investments. So if you're making money, um, rental property income. So if the trust is making money on your real estate rentals mm -hmm. and then retirement distributions. So just as when we take distributions for our, from our 401k, we have to pay income. So do your kids. Yeah. 
Um, but that's, and I, I, that sounds like a lot, but that, that's actually just income earned after your death. And that's just regular income tax. It's not estate or inheritance taxes. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is, this is really good. I think I'm, I mean, that was a lot of information that we, uh, that we covered. Yes. Um, uh, I would encourage any, any of our listeners here, if they, if they have questions about how to, form a trust or whether they should or not. I just want to give a plug to Brittany. Uh, Brittany's handled uh, uh, trust formation for uh, many of our clients and every single one has been uh, very happy with the service and the, um, the method that, that Brittany uses here. Uh, and she's very knowledgeable. So I, I, would, I would encourage anybody, even if they're not sure what they want to do, just to reach out and gather some more information because uh, I, I think uh, I think Brittany offers offers a, a really good value uh, for this service, and I, I uh, I'm you've made a believer out of me that almost everyone should have one of these. So yes, I appreciate that, Tom. And we're based here in Burbank, but I serve clients throughout California. I have a fair number of clients in the Bay Area, and you'll be the first one to hear that Britain Law Group is looking to expand to Palm Springs later this year. Okay. So we're going to have a second location out there in Riverside County and serving, you know, there's a big population that has moved out to the desert and we want to make sure they have the same access to services that our clients here in Burbank do. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I, I wish you luck with that expansion. And I think the people in that area are going to be fortunate to have you as a, uh, to provide this service for them out there. And uh, I want to thank everybody at home for uh, watching and listening today. And uh, certainly feel free, like I said, to reach out to Brittany. Or if you need financial or investment advice, uh, we're always around to, uh, to help you with that end of it also. Uh, we will uh, put Brittany's contact information up on the screen uh, in post here so that you'll be able to um, find out uh, where she is with both her website and email and contact info. And uh, thanks, Brittany. I really appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. And I look forward to our next, uh, our next chat here. Yes, let me know. I'll be ready. All right. Thank you, Brittany. Take care. Thanks, Have Tom. a nice day. Take you care. too. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that's it for today's episode with trust and estate attorney, Brittany Britton. We hope you've enjoyed learning how trusts and wills work. We've got some great guests lined up for future episodes, and we'll be sure to let you know when they're available. Thanks again for watching.